there is a uh, pretty popular TV show years ago that was out. The main character in that TV show has a line that he kind of repeats throughout that show. It is that our greatest fears lie in anticipation. Our greatest fears lie in anticipation. And uh, whenever I have to speak, that never becomes truer than in that moment. Once I'm up here, I'm fine, but the anticipation can be gut-wrenching sometimes. And uh, I just want to say this before I get into my message. This was so true last night, and I want to say the same thing again this morning. Um, Every time I come up here, I am greeted with so many people that legitimately smile back at me. And I look out and I see the faces of people that I have gotten to do ministry with and that I've gotten to know and that you have been so great to me and my family. And so while my fears may reside in the anticipation, right, here's the thing. I get up here and I get to make eye contact with you guys and I know your stories and I know how God has worked through you and it is a joy and a privilege and an honor To be able to say that, man, God has legitimately blessed me with some of the best 10 years of my life being here with you all. And I am grateful for you, and I am thankful for you. And so if we have not had the opportunity to meet, because while there are so many faces that I do know, there are others that I don't. And hopefully, hopefully we'll have an opportunity to connect and share stories and hear how God is working in your life. But just for right now, my name is Brian Herring. I serve as one of the pastors here at Spanish River Church. And today we get to continue through the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. I've been meeting with people a lot over the course of the last couple weeks. And there's been a theme that I've seen repeated over and over with people that I've had the opportunity to meet with. And it's this legitimate theme of just exhaustion and weariness that people have. And maybe you can relate. I see a lot of you shaking heads. Just this 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 burden that we seem to be kind of walking through. And I love our call to worship this morning because what did, what did Eric do in leading us into worship this morning? But he read from Matthew 11 where Jesus, Jesus turns out, he says, look, all of you who labor, all of you who are heavy burdened, come to me. Learn from me because there is peace for your souls. How many of us long for peace in our souls? I mean, we know it's true, but so often we forget because so often we get wrapped up in everything that's going on in our world. And too often we become more preoccupied with the voices of the culture around us and more with the worries of the day today than reminding ourselves of the gospel that Jesus preached and the gospel by which we were saved to those who believe. There's a quote that I love. It's from a pastor up in Philadelphia, and he says this. He says, in life there is nobody who is more influential to you than you are. Do you know that? There's nobody in life who's more influential to you than you. You know why? Because nobody talks to themselves as much as you talk to you. Every single one of you, every day that you wake up, you are preaching to yourself some kind of a gospel. And more often than not, we start preaching to ourselves the righteousness and the gospel of our age, and it leaves us exhausted exhausted from trying to keep up or exhausted from trying to maintain. With my kids in the past, I've used this, and I used to use this as a teacher. I'd say, you need to be more of a thermostat and not a thermometer, right? So when I would say that to my kids or I'd say that to my class, what I mean is when you step into a room, I want you to set the temperature, not react to it. 
I want you to be a thermostat. I want you to go in there and lead. And through your attitude and your actions, I want you to influence people around you. I don't want you to be a thermometer who walks in and just reacts to what's already going on in the room. But I think more often than not, I fall into the habit of being a thermometer with the culture around me. When I started this job almost 10 years ago now, uh, our senior pastor was, uh, was Dr. Ketis. And many of you remember him, and Tommy was a great guy, but Tommy was a morning person. That might actually be an understatement, right? Like, Tommy was up at like 3 o'clock every morning. I used to get emails from him at 4.30. And we had an executive pastor and a senior pastor that were in the office well before 6. And so I came in, and I'm surrounded by these high-capacity men and women and this amazing staff of individuals that are doing great things for the Lord. And I'm like, all right, here we go. I can do, I, I want that type of a morning routine. I can do that. I can make this happen. So I started setting my, my alarm clock for 4.15. Yeah. Yeah, so after about a week, we, we kicked that back to 5.30. And, uh, and after about two weeks, my wife legitimately said, no more. Because you are a horrible person when you're tired. And I was just <laughs> exhausted. I was so exhausted trying to keep up. Now, that's a funny story, but if we're honest with ourselves, we can find ourselves exhausted from trying to maintain as well, right? Any of you mothers in this room, you know that. You know the mommy wars are real. And as much as you'll claim, hey, I don't get involved in that, you notice that their child's crawling already. Why isn't yours? And holy cow, look at their vocabulary. My kid doesn't speak like that. Or maybe you, maybe this is for guys as well, right? We'll jump onto social media and we're like, holy cow, this person works 70 hours a week, grows their own cotton and knits their own organic shirts for their family. I am failing as a human being. I've got to keep up. I've got to keep up. I've got to keep up. My career has to make this. I have to make this. They have new cars. Why don't I? And we find ourselves exhausted with constantly trying to build some sort of righteousness, some sort of justification, some sort of purpose or identity in our lives. On the flip side of that, maybe you are one of those families that has it all together. Maybe you have the perfect kids who never do anything wrong. Or at least you pretend to make us think they never do. Perhaps you have the career and the business that took off. Perhaps you live in that school area. But here's the thing. Pride begins to set in because what happens when you feel like you've achieved that level of righteousness or that level of identity, but you look at people around you and you say, I've done it, what's your problem? Didn't pay attention enough in undergrad, did you? But here's what happens is that pride becomes exhausting because it has to be maintained. What happens to the person who has so much faith and pride built up in their kid's behavior and then all of a sudden that kid does something incredibly stupid? What happens when your pride and your identity and your righteousness is built on your career and your earnings and all of a sudden your market goes south? And there's this pressure and there's this exhaustion that comes from having to maintain. But as we've been walking and we look today at a passage in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 through 20, you can turn there, we're going to read it here in a second, Jesus begins to showcase that there is a greater righteousness for us, a righteousness that leads to rest and peace. The Beatitudes will tell us this is a, a greater righteousness that brings about mercy and purity and peace, a rest that we long for in our souls. So today, let's be reminded of the gospel. 
Uh, Maybe a gospel that we have forgotten or that we have never known, but an opportunity to say, no, 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 today I need to preach to myself what Christ has done in my heart. We're in Matthew chapter 5, so if you have your Bible, please open up to it. This section will show on the screens, but I would encourage you, if you have a Bible, take it out. Use your phone, because we're also going to be reading a couple other passages that won't show up there. This is Matthew, the Levite, disciple of Jesus, a tax collector who records this in the fifth chapter, starting in the 17th verse. The word of the Lord. Jesus speaking says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, I have not come to abolish them, but what? To fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, For I tell you, Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never, never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, Lord, so grateful for your word. And Lord, may may we preach a gospel to ourselves today. May your spirit awaken within us the rest that you have for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So here we're coming to a part in Jesus' sermon. This is the first part in Jesus' ministry where he is going to address the law. This is the Tanakh. This is the Old Testament. Jews don't call it the Old Testament. They would call it the Tanakh, and that's made up of the law, which is Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, or the Tanakh, as well as all the rest of it, which would be the prophets. These are the writings of history, the nation of Israel. These are the great prophets, the minor prophets. These are the books of literature and wisdom and lament. And here Jesus is addressing them because there begins to be a rumor that, hey, this guy, Jesus, is, is, is teaching some sort of anti-law or some sort of new law against which Moses laid out. And Jesus uses this as an opportunity to tell them, no, 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 no. No, in verse 17, he says, it's actually quite the opposite. He says, I don't think that I've come to abolish this law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And fulfill there is the key word. Well, what does he mean when he's saying, I've come to fulfill all of the Tanakh, all of the law, all of Torah, as well as the prophets? In a nutshell, he's saying this. And Jesus came to fulfill a number, but the main main fulfillment of Jesus' ministry was this. It was that... Ooh, out of order. Here we go. It was that... That by dying on the cross and thereby satisfying forever the demands of the law against those who would believe in him. Ultimately, at the end of the day, Christ fulfilled the law through his death. And therefore, satisfying the demands of the law and, and showing forgiveness and atonement for those who would believe in him. And here's the beauty of it. Jesus says, look... The law has been already speaking about this for centuries. This is not new. Because whenever, whenever there was a law, there was always something that followed it, which was a sacrifice. When, when God gave the nation of Israel the lawgiver of Moses, right next to him, he gave them the high priest of Aaron. When there was sin, what was there but a lamb for the atonement? 
and repeated throughout, throughout, throughout the centuries, we see what? But we see sin, sacrifice, sin, sacrifice, sin, death, sin, shedding of blood, sin, atonement. What we have is Pavlov's dog. God is training up his people over and over through this cycle so that when Christ comes, when Messiah comes, when God's final lamb comes to take the sins of the world, they will recognize him. Ah, this makes sense. If you don't know who Pavlov's dog is, Pavlov was a Russian scientist, behavioral scientist. And so you might know it better, actually, from the office, because this is what Jim does to Dwight. And, uh, but Pavlov, what he did was he had an experiment where he would ring a bell and then would feed his dog dinner. And repeatedly, over and over, from the time this dog was a puppy, bell food, bell food. Well, one day, years into this, bell no food, and Pavlov looked. And the dog ran over, and even though there was no food, he began to salivate and try to eat at something that was there, but not there. And so there's this repetitive cycle in behavioral science and And that's exactly what God is doing with his people. And the law atones to this. And Jesus is like, I am the fulfillment of what you have seen throughout the Torah and throughout the prophets. But it's it's not just the Torah, but it's the prophets as well. Prophecies about who would come and the fulfillment of what was promised to Adam and Eve all the way at the beginning of Genesis. What we saw through Abraham, through David, all the way through. The the most beautiful of all of these, I think, is found in Isaiah chapter 53. And the beauty of this is found so clearly in the significance that Christ's death on the cross is not for him, but for us. If you have your Bible, open open up to Isaiah 53. Let's look at this briefly, and I'll show you what I mean. But Isaiah 53, just verses 4 through 6. Verses 4 through 6. The great prophet writes out this. He says, surely he has borne our griefs. Whose griefs did he bear? Ours. Look look at how he continues. He says, and he he carried whose sorrows? Ours. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for whose transgressions? He was crushed for whose iniquities? Upon him was the chastisement that brought who peace? Us. And by his wounds, who is healed? We are. All of us, all of us like sheep have gone astray. We have turned, every one of us, to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of who? Us all. Jesus stands before this crowd of Pharisees, of scribes, of men, of women, of his disciples. And he says, I am the fulfillment of all of this. All of you in your sin have gone your own way. All of you deserving death, cursed under the law. Yet I, God in human flesh, come to you as a fulfillment of what you have seen, not only in Torah, but also in the prophets. Sin, sacrifice, sin, sacrifice, sin, substitute. And I now have the ability to perfectly obey that law and take on myself not not just Brian's sin, but the sin of the world and all those who would call on his name and believe. 
my death in your place. And what does Isaiah say so beautifully? But it offers us peace. Peace knowing that death is not the end, but in his resurrection and ours, there is new life to come. And so he says this, he says, look guys, it's, none of it's going away. None of it will be changed. And if anybody, if anybody neglects it or teaches against it, they will be least in the kingdom of heaven, he says. But then, then he kind of brings it really full circle. So he looks at his audience and he says, here's, here's what I want you to understand. He's like, human righteousness will fulfill nothing. And he does it by pulling out in verse 20 and pointing out the Pharisees and the scribes that are there. Look at verse 20 for us. He says this, For I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now we read that, and in today's context we think, well, the scribes and the Pharisees, those are the bad guys. I mean, that's the religious class who was opposed to Jesus, who actually called for his death and assassination. I mean, those are the bad guys. But 2,000 years ago, that was not the case. I mean, parents, these are the types of people that you wanted your kids to grow up to be. In one of the commentaries I read, there was an old proverb uh, at this point in history in, among the Jews that said, if only two men should enter the kingdom of heaven, one will be a scribe and one will be a Pharisee. They are highly, highly esteemed. They're pious, they're righteous, they're political, they're culture building, they're holding on to the values of those people. And so highly esteemed, and yet Jesus is saying, look, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you need, you need to make that kind of a mark, but above it. But see, here, here's the kicker. As we read that and we think, okay, so that means if like, this is, this is where the Pharisees are, I just, I just got to kick it right up here, just a little bit, just a little bit. I can, maybe I can do that if I try really hard for the rest of my life on this earth. Maybe this will work out. But anybody sitting there would think, like, that would be like me saying, you know what? If I work really hard, maybe I can jump higher than Michael Jordan did. Maybe, and that'll get me into heaven. But that's the type of level that they're up against. And Jesus isn't necessarily saying that. What Jesus is saying is this. Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. You need an entirely different kind of righteousness. You need an entirely different type of righteousness. A righteousness that is not built as a human righteousness, that is exhausting, and that ultimately will never, ever match up to what the law requires or what God deserves or demands. But you need a divine righteousness. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, I believe it is. No, it's 16. Uh, in 1 Samuel 16, God has already said this again in the Tanakh, in the prophets. Samuel is ready to anoint a new king of Israel because Saul has just completely screwed up. And so he arrives at this home of Jesse. And Jesse's got all these boys. And the first boy comes out. And this guy is tall. He's handsome. He's athletic. Basically, he's this guy right here, okay? And he comes out. That was not a joke. I'm just kidding, right? And what happens? But, but Samuel says, that's the guy. That's our next king. But the Lord says to Samuel, he says, oh, no, 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 no. No, men look at stature, and men 
look at the man or the outside. But the Lord, the Lord looks at the heart. See, we judge ourselves and we strive so hard with this human righteousness to try and prove ourselves to our culture. And I do believe so often it creeps in where we're trying to prove ourselves to God as well. And it leaves us exhausted and it leaves us, it leaves us in a horrible spot. Because here's one thing that I loved that one commentator said. He said, hell will be filled with people that are full of human righteousness. And all these things that were like, well, honesty is good, right? Hard work is good. Faithfulness is good. They are, but they're not saving. And ultimately, they never address the internal part of who we are, which is our soul, which is our heart. Look at it this way. Let's say at the end of this service, I was like feeling it, right? And I was like, hey, I'm going to make omelets for everybody. All right, I'm going to make an omelet. We're going to have a huge omelet bar, right? And I'm going to need some help. And David's a much better cook than I, so Pastor David will come up here and he'll help me. But we're going to cook up these omelets. And so I've got like the best of hams. I've got completely organic vegetables, peppers, and onions. We've got bacon, crispy, oh, so good, right? I've got the best cheeses and eggs. And so I start cracking the eggs to make up that part of the omelet, right? And on my last egg, I've got this huge back of eggs. On my last egg, I crack it, and it is green and rotten. Exactly. Ew. <laughs> And if you've smelled a rotten egg, you know what I'm talking about. But it's my last one, and right into the bowl. And I'm like, you know what? Maybe they didn't notice. So I stir it in real quick. The color goes away. The smell goes away. They look great. I grease up the pan. I throw the eggs in. I start cooking them up. I add all of those amazing ingredients. The choices of meats and of cheeses, of vegetables. And I close up that omelet, and I place it before you. It looks amazing, and it smells even better. And like Pavlov's dog, you are just drooling. But here's the thing. You know the rotten egg that's in there, and you're not going to want to eat it. See, all those good things that were in there were destroyed, were perverted, were ruined by the rottenness of that egg. And here we come before our God, and here we come before a righteous and holy and just God, and we say, look at all of our good stuff. Look at this little old lady I helped across the street. Look at my church attendance. Look at how I behaved in business. Look at how I was faithful. And yet, what does God say? No, I, I look at the heart. The righteousness you that you present will not save you but will in fact damn you to hell. No, you need a different righteousness, a divine righteousness, a kingdom righteousness, a greater righteousness that can be given to us. And in order to, in order to push that home, what does Jesus do? But I think he preaches by far the most convicting and terrifying passages of scripture that we get to read through. He lists five statements. You have heard it said, do not murder. But I say, do not be angry. You have heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say, do not lust. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, turn the other cheek. You have heard it said, you know, to how, to, how to make oaths. And I just say, let your yes be yes and your no be no. I say, love your enemies. And what he's doing is he's highlighting the human righteousness, but exposing the heart. Murders. Murder is something that I think everyone in this room would say is awful. 
I, what, that would never, I can in my human righteousness say that I have not murdered, but yet what does Jesus say? He says, how many, how many of your neighbors have you assassinated through your gossip and your slander? Whose character have you murdered with your anger? Let's kick it up a notch. You've been to sporting events. You've seen the rallies on the television. How do we speak or post about those that God, according to our scriptures, has placed in power? Do we demoralize, defame, and destroy in our anger? And yet God says, murder. How many of us say, I've been faithful. I've done what I'm supposed to. I've been good to my spouse. And that pride wells up. I don't understand why you couldn't. And yet, what does Jesus say? He says, no, the fantasies that you've been living in, the pornography, and pornography is not just a male problem. It's growing in great numbers with young women in its use. And this great lie that, you know what, this is just between the screen and I. I'm not hurting anybody. Jesus says, adulterer. And yet, we make oaths, but Jesus says, no, no, no. To the lawyers of the day where they love to manipulate and they love to, to twist and turn and say, well, you know, we can get away with this. We can finagle this. He says, no, 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 no. No, there needs to be an integrity so deep within you that you don't need to worry about the consequences. Because why do we lie? We lie because most of the time we're fearful of what's going to happen. If I post my real numbers... Is it going to hurt my possibility for a promotion? We can fudge this. Jesus says, no. There needs to be an integrity within your heart that is so deep. You don't worry about that. He says, look, you don't retaliate, but you turn the other cheek. And this could be a whole sermon in and of itself, right? That does not mean that says, dude, I just took one on this chin. So you know what? Let's even it up. I'm all about symmetry. That's not what Jesus is saying. But think of it. Think of it like in Europe, right? What do they do? But they kiss on the cheeks. This is a response that says, I have been wronged, I have been wounded, but I turn looking for in return a kiss. I want to work towards reconciliation. I don't want to go Hatfields and McCoy on this. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm anticipating a response of a kiss and a bringing back together what was broken. Ultimately cultivating in what but a love for our enemies. Oh, oh. Not an ignoring, not an indifference, but a moving to. Love serves and what covers a multitude of sins. All of this closed out with what? Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. <laughs> because human righteousness will never satisfy the law and will never satisfy the demands of our just God. No, you are in need. We are in need. And we are needed to be reminded of a divine righteousness, a kingdom righteousness that is beyond what we can produce, that does not change the outside first, but changes the heart. As the Beatitude says, what? What blessed are the poor in spirit. A humility that sets in. And then through that mourning 
And through that humility and through that hungering and thirsting for God's truth, what happens? But that begins to affect the outside. The holiness that God wants for you and for I is wholeness, inside and outside. And then what do the rest of the Beatitudes promise? But mercy, purity, and peace rest for your souls. Not in the fear or the pride of a human righteousness, but on the kingdom righteousness, on the greater righteousness, on the divine righteousness that is afforded to us through the finished work of God's Son, His death on the cross for my sin and for yours. Risen to new life and reminding me constantly of that. Be reminded of that if you have forgotten and come to it if you have never known it. Heavenly Father, Oh, Lord, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Lord, take our hearts and seal them. Lord, remind us of this divine righteousness, of this kingdom righteousness, of this greater righteousness that Jesus affords. Lord, in our exhaustion, forgive us for this human righteousness that we have provided presented as filth, as dung, as Paul will say. Lord, may we be like the tax collectors and the sinners who say, have mercy on us, a sinner. And Lord, may we be a people who are changed on the inside with a righteousness that flows out from what you have accomplished for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this. We thank you for your goodness and your continued running after us. In your name, above all other names, do we pray. Amen.